Genesis 2, 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Thanks, Meredith. Well, what we've been up to the past um, five or six weeks or so is we've been talking about uh, the Bible. Specifically, we're talking about what the Bible says about the Bible. And uh, this is our last one. Uh, last one of these to do this. Next week is the first Sunday in Lent, and so we'll, we'll do something a little bit different um, next week. But uh, to wrap up this little um, epiphany series that we've been doing, I I wanted us to think about the fact that Scripture says about itself that it's a story, that the Bible itself is one big overarching narrative. Uh, One of my pastoral heroes, Tim Keller, uh, he said this, he said, quote, the Bible is not a set of individual stories that tell you how you should live in order to find God. The Bible is a single story about how God came to earth to find you. Now, I I had been a Christian for many years before that idea really kind of clicked on for me. I'd been around the Bible a lot, but the Bible just felt very uh, disconnected. didn't really understand how it all fit together. It kind of felt like um, 
like a, a literary version of trail mix. You know, you, you get like trail mix, you got some almonds in there, some raisins, you got some peanuts, maybe some M&Ms. And the Bible kind of felt the same way. You know, you reach in and you're just like, oh, here's a story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And you kind of sift through it, you reach in again, oh, there's Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. There's some weird laws about mildew. There's a letter that somebody's writing to a church. It's like, okay, it's all this stuff. How does it all fit together? And the older I have gotten, the more that I have realized um, why it is so essential to understand the Bible as a, as a unified story, not just for the sake of understanding the Bible better, which I think helps you do that, but I think also because it helps you understand life better. It helps, you, it helps you understand the very world that you're living in if you understand that the Bible is a story. And I realize that's a pretty audacious thing to say. So let's, let's unpack it. Let's try to jump in and talk about it. I really want to talk about just two big ideas, what the story actually is and why it matters. What it is, why it matters. So let's just get our bearings. Let's, let's just kind of quickly walk through what is the whole story of the Bible. We're going to do that in five minutes. Um, if you look at the very beginning, the, the, the book uh, of Genesis is the first book uh, of the Bible, and you can see that the Bible begins in the setting of a garden. Look at verse 8. Uh, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So, okay, look at a couple of the features of this garden. You've got this beautiful garden. You've got God dwelling with uh, humanity. Um, look, look at verse uh, 9. You have trees. You have the tree of life. You see that in verse 9? Uh, in verse 10, you see that there's a river. You have this uh, picture of paradise. In other words, uh, the world begins by showing you that the world is good and beautiful, and it's, it's designed and it's functioning the way that it was supposed to be. When you go all the way to the end of the Bible, which is the, the last book of the Bible is a book called Revelation, you see that the Bible, even though it begins in a garden, it ends with a city. Look at, um, look at verse, uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 2. So this is your kind of second paragraph uh, chunk there in there. It says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You see all this city language in that third paragraph. Look at, look at chapter 22, verse 2, which is that fourth paragraph. It says, uh, through the middle of the street of the city. So, Bible begins in a garden, but by the time you get to the end, the world has become this, it's developed. It's become this uh, dense, diverse, urban environment. However, the city is very garden-y, garden-ish. Look at all of these garden-y features with this. Um, look at verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 3. It talks about humanity dwelling with God. Um, in chapter 22, verse 1, you see that there's a river. In chapter 22, verse 2, you see there's trees, there's leaves. You even have the tree of life again, makes its second debut. And um, so what you have here is you have, like, the garden, but it's, it's better. It's like the garden on steroids. It's, it's, it's developed. And so but you look at these two bookends, Genesis, Revelation, garden, city garden. You get clues about what happened in between these two, you know, plot points. Look at um, chapter 21, verse 4. 
it says, he will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more, no more mourning, crying. Somehow tears and death and crying showed up between these two endpoints. And in fact, if in, in chapter 22, verse 2, it says the, you know, uh, that the nations are going to be healed, which shows and assumes that the nations needed to have been healed. There's something broken or injured about the nations. Something went horribly wrong between these two endpoints. So if you step back from the whole thing, theologians will tell you that you can really map out the plot of the Bible under four main headings, four main chapters. Chapter one is creation. God makes the world good, beautiful, right in the garden. Chapter two is you have the fall. Human beings looked at God and we rebelled against God. We said, we don't want you to be in charge. We want to be in charge. And as a result, we introduced death and pain and crying and destruction into the world. The whole world got out of whack. It got all messed up. Chapter three is redemption. Uh, God does something about it. And what he does about it is he sends his son Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom. And so Jesus pays for the penalty of our sin by living and dying and rising in our place. And he begins to renovate and restore everything that's broken in the world. And the way that you hook into this redemptive project is through faith. Chapter four, final chapter, you have restoration, kind of this uh, that the restoration project is complete. Everything gets made new. It's that picture of the garden city that we just read about in Revelation 21 and 22. So what you have here is the Bible telling you this is the story of the world. This is the story that you actually woke up in this morning. This is the story that you and I are inhabiting, whether or not we acknowledge it or not. And the reason why the Bible comes to us and tells us the story, it's not just to inform us but it's also to invite us, to invite us to live into that because that changes everything. This is, by the way, what um, Hagrid did with Harry Potter in Harry Potter book one. You know, Harry Potter was just this 11-year-old kid doing his thing. He was living under the stairs at his aunt and uncle's house, and he had this weird scar on his face, and that's what he thought life was. All he knew was that his parents had been killed in a car accident, and for some reason, he can talk with snakes, but that was about it. And then Hagrid kind of barges into his life and says, whoa, 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 that is, uh, that is not the story you're actually a part of. You are a part of this much bigger, grander drama that explains everything. And this, this story involves things you don't even know about yet, stuff like uh, hippogriffs and wizards and Quidditch all this stuff in this story, let me tell you about this story. If you, if you lean into this story, it explains your past. It explains uh, what happened with your parents. It explains why you got that weird scar on your forehead. This story explains your present. It explains why you feel so different from other people, why you uh, can interact with snakes. This story explains your future. It tells you that you're going you're gonna to go off to this place called Hogwarts on a train, learn how to be a wizard. In other words, Hag Hagrid is opening up his brain to, to show him, whoa, whoa, you are part of this much bigger story, and that changes everything about Harry's life. In the same way, you and I, we show up into this world, and we just assume life is this very narrow little story that we are living we showed up, we were born into a family, we were raised in our hometown, we played Super Mario on NES, we watched you know, Saved by the Bell, 
we uh, did our thing, we got a career, and we just were kind of going through life, and we think that's what life is. That's the story I'm living. And the Bible says, whoa, that's, that's way too small of a story. You are a part of this much grander drama, this much bigger narrative. You were born, you just sh- you woke up in a world that was created good and was damaged by the fall and is being redeemed by Jesus and will one day be completely restored and turned to the kingdom of, of God. That's the story you're inhabiting. Now, why does that matter? How does that change everything? Because like Harry... If that changes everything about Harry's life, how would that change our lives if we actually leaned into that and and embraced that that was the story that we're living? Well, that's point two, why this matters. So let's talk about it. That's what the story is. So why does this matter? And there are really, there are so many things that we could say, so many implications we could tease out about how this intersects with our lives and and why this matters. I'm going to give you three from, these pa- from this passage, wh- why this story matters. Here's the first one. The story matters because the biblical story is the only story that really provides you with meaning. The biblical story is really the, is the only narrative that provides your life with meaning. Here's what I mean by that. Um, there was a... Um, very famous uh, paleontologist at Harvard named Stephen Jay Gould. He's a very outspoken atheist. And in the 80s, Life magazine was running this um, uh, special um, about the meaning of life. And so they asked him and a bunch of other thought leaders and artists and people like that um, to answer that question. What is the meaning of life? And so they wrote in and published this, you know, magazine about it. And here's what Stephen Jay Gould said. Here's here's his contribution. Here's the meaning of life. Quote, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform its legs for terrestrial creatures and because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves. So here's what he just said. He said, um, there is no God. All that exists is just whatever you see around you. We got here through a kind of a chaotic process of uh, natural selection. That's the story. There is no meaning. There's no point to all of this. While that sounds depressing, what's exhilarating is that means that you get to create your own meaning. You can live whatever you want. You can create meaning, whatever. That's the freedom of all of this. Create your own meaning. Now, if, uh, if I were to talk with him up here right now, Stephen, Mr. Gould, um, Dr. Gould, um, I would say something like this. If everything before your life was empty and meaningless, and everything that comes after your life is empty and meaningless, then at least have the guts to admit that your life is empty and meaningless. It, you can manufacture whatever meaning you want, of course, but just know the story that you're saying that you're living in, it, it's inconsistent with that. It's a fiction. It doesn't make any sense. You're, you're, you're out of sorts with the very story you're saying that you're living in. 
There's another, um, there's another thinker who I think is being much more consistent. There's an there's a NYU professor named Thomas Nagel who, um, uh, not a Christian, I think he's an agnostic. He, he wrote a, a book also in the 80s that you can find online. There's a chapter of this book called The Meaning of Life. You can download the whole thing, read it, it's pretty short. But here's what he said in that, in that chapter that I think is much more um, honest. Here's what he says. Quote, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down or collapse and all trace of your efforts will vanish. Looking at it from the outside, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. Now that sounds depressing, but at least he's being consistent. He's saying, look, there's no God. Um, one day the sun's going to burn out and uh, the earth's going to freeze over and all of human civilization is just going to be deleted. And so you can, you can live for something in this life that's going to provide you with meaning. You might write an amazing book that is even benefits human civilization for a thousand years. You might um, pour all of your meaning into raising a family or fighting for a social cause that you really care about. But at the end of the day, human civilization is just going to be erased and none of it will have mattered. Which means how you choose to live your life right now ultimately doesn't really matter. You can be a murderer. You can be a therapist. It's still the same, you know, it all comes out in the wash. You could be Hitler. You could be Mother Teresa. Doesn't matter. No meaning. Now, that is a very different story than the story that uh, Scripture says that we're living. The story that Scripture tells us that we're living says everything that you do matters. Everything. Everything is charged with meaning. In fact, let, let me show you just a couple of passages or a couple of um, verses from this passage. Look at Revelation 21, verse 24. It says, um, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It's interesting. The kings of the earth are bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now, this is fuzzy, but what I think this is saying is that you have this picture at the end of time where all these different nations, all these various cultures are bringing in their unique cultural products and cultural artifacts and contributions into the renewed world, into the new heavens and new earth. And I don't know what that means. I don't really know what that looks like, but it could look like uh, maybe something like, okay, you have the... you have. Russians who are bringing their literature into uh, the new heavens, new earth. Or you have the French who are bringing in crepes into the new heavens, new earth. Or you, know, you have African-Americans who are bringing in hip-hop. Or uh, Mexicans bringing in street corn. Or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Just I don't know what it is. But you have these different cultures that are bringing in their stuff, their unique thing, into the renewed world, which shows you... It all matters. That stuff lasts. All that stuff counts. Goes on forever. And in fact, the, the inverse is also true. Look at 21 uh, verse 27. You see that nothing unclean 
enters into the renewed world, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, which shows you how you choose to live your life. It actually matters. Everything you do has eternal impact, eternal significance. And so here's what this means. This means that the the Christian story, the biblical story is looking at you and saying everything, even to the smallest detail, everything you do matters. Every diaper you change matters. Every kind word you say or don't say, it matters. Every Excel spreadsheet you make, every song you write or piece of art you generate or whatever, it all matters. The Christian, the biblical story is, is the only one that says everything you do counts, everything you do matters. Here's the second one, second implication of this. The biblical story alone validates your pain. The biblical story alone is the only story that validates your pain. Here's what I mean by that. Human beings have this very deep need, good need, right need, to know that our pain matters, uh, to to know that it's uh, important. I think this is one of the reasons why it's hard for us to forgive people. Um, Because if you think, if you're hurt by somebody, if somebody has injured you, um, for you to forgive that person means that you release them. You don't pay them back. That's what forgiveness is. For you, but for you to say, I'm going to release you of this. I'm not going to make you pay for this. It creates in, uh, an injustice gap, which is pretty painful because here you are with the hurt, and there they are who did the hurt but without any hurt, and that feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. And so to forgive them, it feels like if I'm just going to release you of this and not make you pay for this, it gets really dangerously close to saying that my pain doesn't matter. That is like, oh, it's okay. You can walk all over me. You, this is not worth paying for. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for us to extend forgiveness because it feels like it diminishes us. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, very famously said this line. He said that uh, he believes, quote, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, as a Christian, the way that he understands the world is he says human history, the narrative is, is long, which means there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of things that happen that have no explanation, just excruciatingly, perplexingly traumatic But he believes that it's bending, I love that language, it's bending towards justice. It's bending towards a point where one day, someday, it will be resolved. The wrongs will be righted. Uh, All the sadness will come untrue. That is a uniquely Christian perspective of of human history, by the way. In fact, I don't know if he gets this from Revelation 21, verse 4, but at least this supports it. Look at verse 4. It says that God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is such a beautiful image because if you think about somebody taking their finger and wiping tears from your eyes, tears from your face, not only is that a picture of, of comfort, of removing the sadness, but it is a picture of God acknowledging that the tears were there to begin with. 
seeing, validating the fact that he knows you have grieved, that you have grieved something, and that grieves him. He's the, he's the, this is the only story where you have a God that is personally addressing your pain and validating the fact that it's there and that it is so painful. Compare this story with the story that Ta-Nehisi Coates tells. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, modern author, modern thinker, he wrote an article in The Atlantic a number of years ago um, in which he kind of riffs off of Dr. King's language about the arc bending towards justice. And here's what he says from this article. Quote, I am an atheist. I don't believe the arc of the universe bends towards justice. I don't even believe in an arc. I believe in chaos. I don't know that it all ends badly, but I think it probably does. Now, he's just kind of telling you this is just the modern kind of secular view of the world, that um, there is no arc, there is no justice, it's just chaos. We got here by chaos, we're going to die in chaos, it's all going to, human history is going to end in chaos with extinction, that's just it. Which is to say, there is no validation for your pain. You might have experienced trauma and abuse, loss, and that's painful, but that's just, you know, welcome to the chaos party. That's just what it means to live in a chaotic world. There's no point to it. No validation in that worldview. Compare that with um, karmic religions, religions that believe in karma. These religions would say that the reason why you're experiencing suffering and pain in this life is because you did something bad in a previous life that you're now paying for. So even if you're experiencing something that you would say is unjust, it's not unjust. You deserved it. The fact that you're feeling pain and suffering right now, they would say, that's on you, which is not validation. That's just blame. Compare that with other Eastern religions, Buddhism that says uh, everything is an illusion, life is an illusion. Uh, we think that there's separation. We think there's distinctives. We think there's many different things. There's not. Everything is just one. We're all just kind of part of the same thing, which means that you're suffering your pain, even though you're feeling it and experiencing it, it is, um, it, it's an illusion. It's part of this bigger thing. No validation. The Christian story, the biblical story, is the only story that says God did not create the world to experience pain. And the fact that it breaks your heart is a, is, is a reflection of the fact that it breaks his heart. He's the only God that you see weeping, grieving, he, he, enough to plunge himself into the suffering himself, to take it on himself, to feel it in order to redeem it. In other words, the biblical story is the only story that validates your pain, that says, yes, it is real, and it's painful, and it matters, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. Christianity is the only worldview that says that. Now, you may be a Christian, and you may hear that, and you think, when I look at my life, it certainly doesn't seem like God cares about pain. And that's fair. I think the Bible would look at you and say, if you want to know whether or not God cares about pain, don't look at your life. Look at Jesus' life. That's how you know how God feels about pain. He plunged into it. He suffered with us, and he suffered ultimately to, to remove it, ultimately. 
So that's the second big implication that uh, the biblical story is the, is the only story that validates our pain. Here's the last one. I'll be briefer here. Um, but the biblical story is the only story that I think is truly liberating. It alone is liberating. Here's what I mean. It is the default impulse of every human being to want to save ourselves by our own efforts. We may not use that word save, but, but it's the same idea, that we want to reach enlightenment, we want to make a name for ourselves, we want to be good people uh, by our own efforts. We believe in salvation by performance. So every human being, I think, shows up in the world believing. Salvation by performance. And this is, by the way, both religious systems and non-religious systems all operate the same way. Every other religious system is salvation by performance. If you want enlightenment or nirvana or heaven or you want to break the, the reincarnation cycle, it, you do that by your devotion, by your commitment, by your living a good life, you being a good, holy person. It's on you. You perform and you, you reach salvation. And this is, uh, this is non-religious systems as well. All, all non-religious systems, of course, would not use that word salvation, but it's the same idea. If you want to be a good person, you want to be the right kind of person, you have to perform. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm going to speak very generally. If you show up at a Trump rally, got real quiet. If you show up at a Trump rally and you tell somebody there that you think we should loosen our immigration policy, or if you refer to January 6th as an insurrection, you might get crucified. Because, uh, again, well, let me just say, I'm not speaking to any of those issues. This is no, there's no political agenda behind this comment. I'm simply just drawing attention to the fact that there's a code. There's a code of beliefs and behaviors that if you want to be in, if you want to be the right kind of person within that system, you've got to perform. You've got to, you've got to do something. And it cuts the other way as well. I mean, if you were to go to a progressive midtowner, and tell them, I think the city should paint over the rainbow crosswalks in Cooper Young. Or I think all lives matter. I mean, you'd be crucified too. It cuts both ways. The point is, again, I'm not, I'm not speaking to these issues. Hear me say that. I'm just drawing attention to the fact that there are non-religious codes that if you want to be good, if you want to be on the right side of history, whatever, however you define it, it's on you. You better perform. You better conform. You better live up. You better jump through the hoops. Believe like us. Salvation by performance. It's all the same. Christianity is the only thing, the only thing that comes along and says salvation is not by performance. It's by resting. Listen to this amazing verse. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, that says this, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. You know what that's saying? That's saying that at the heart of the Bible, it is not an invitation for you to perform and strive and jump through the hoops and stay on the straight and narrow. And if you're a good little boy, you're a good little girl, and you go to church and you do all the things, and you can offer up your resume to God and say, here, is this enough? That's salvation by performance. Christianity says you rest, which means you quit 
you quit the whole game. You say, I'm not, I can't perform. I can't jump through the hoops. I've got nothing to offer. I'm out. I am simply going to collapse into the arms of Jesus. I'm going to rest in him. When you do that, the Bible says that's, that, that's salvation. Not by anything that you have done. It's really just by, it's by you resting in the one who's done everything for you. You're saved by performance. It's just not your performance. It's Jesus' performance. Now, when you step back and you think about the whole Bible, the Bible is, a, is, is, is one book, but it's actually made up of a bunch of smaller books. 66 books in the Bible. You've got 39 books in the Old Testament. You've got 27 books in the New Testament. They, they were, it, was written by, um, it was written over the course of over 1,000 years. It was written by um, 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents. And the miracle of it all is it is this seamless story that is all pointing to God's redemptive agenda through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which shows you that at the heart of this story is a God that graciously redeems the very people who have rebelled against him. You rest your life in that. You rest your life in his grace. That's liberation. Because that means that the pressure is off. You're no longer on the hamster wheel. You no longer feel the burden of, I have to strive and jump through the hoops in order to prove to you and to prove to my God and to prove to myself that I'm a good person. Just that whole way of thinking is just obliterated. You're free, you're done. You can rest. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to inhabit the story that Scripture says that you're living. This is the story that makes sense, I think, that makes the most cumulative sense of your life. It explains why you were ultimately, you were created good. This is why you love justice and you want truth and you love beauty and you love art and you love love. You have all of these things because you're made in God's image. And it explains why you're also such a mess, why you're a bunch of contradictions just like I am. It explains that we have a hero that has come for us, that is redeeming us, that is making all things new, and it gives us a hope that one day, someday, it will all be made right. This is the story that the Bible says that we are living. The, re the question is, will you choose to actually embrace it? Will you choose to say, yes, I'm going to lean into this story? And if you do, it, it changes everything, gives you meaning, validates your pain, gives you purpose, gives you a hope and liberates you from the inside out. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes and unclog our ears and help us to live into this story more and more. Father, protect us from being the kind of people that think about spiritual realities for an hour, one day a week and then go back to life as normal, our small, uh, very self-centered understanding of the story of the universe. Father, expand us. Expand our view of the world that we're living in. Expand our understanding of you, of the past, of the present, of the future. Father, only you can do this. 
So please do it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.